Hello everyone and welcome to episode 15 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello. Well, oh, sorry. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> We didn't plan that. Hello. Don't take me by surprise. (laughs) And Matt Body. Hello. World. (laughs) This week, Matt discusses USB-C authentication and his love of Game of Thrones. Mark talks to FA Fishing and Duck talks about the US government shutdown effect on web security. Hello, everyone. What have you been up to this week? I have been looking at, as a kind of an accident, but then it turned into something interesting, how your DNS resolution varies depending on the country where you start, which started as an experiment to use Tor to tunnel DNS over TCP and ended up becoming a personal interest experiment, which I won't bore you with the results of. Are we going to be able to read about this soon? Well, I don't know. I just started doing it and I haven't really collated the results yet, but it's my idea of Sunday evening fun. (laughs) Makes my Sunday evenings feel a bit inadequate now. Yeah. Same as mine. So I've been hacking together bits of plumbing, and my chickens now have a supply of clean, fresh water forever. Well, well until the water runs out. Yeah. I, I feel reasonably confident the UK is going to be good for water for and for the lifetime you, of a chicken. Yeah. And I'm. I apologise for asking you the same question again as last time. Is did you get the Arduino in yet? Not yet. But in other news, yeah. so the other thing, like this, the non-techy tech thing I've been doing, uh, I have been helping a local organisation get rid of some very ugly hacks on their website, Ooh. which is kind of an interesting diversion. So I've been trying to figure out what's happened to this organisation. So they had, you know, we often talk about WordPress websites and the importance of patching. We're not entirely sure what happened, but we suspect that they had some plugins with vulnerabilities and it looks like either the same hacker had three different goes at the website or three different hackers found the same vulnerability oh, and did various things. Uh, so is this to... a plugin that never got updated? We think so. It's interesting when you go and look back through the history of plugins to say, okay, well, if somebody hadn't updated this plugin, would there be an opportunity to compromise the website? And probably, I think all of the plugins that they had at some point in their history had something that would have allowed someone to take over the website. So then it's a question of, okay, well, how long ago were these updated? Because if they hadn't updated for two or three years, any one of the plugins might have been a candidate. Oh, dear. So the answer is is exactly (laughs) as we all say to people, just get everything updated and then we have to clean the whole thing out. Are you on top of it now? Is it all sorted? Good. Well done. Matt? I have not really done anything that technical. I just got really addicted to the Game of Thrones board game. So... (laughs) Yeah, basically my, my... Offline gaming? Offline gaming, yeah. Can't hang oh, that. What a <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So I've actually been spending a lot of time on YouTube looking at Game of Thrones board game strategy, which is actually... You are pretty cool. It is a sad way to spend your life, but I've been doing I'm a lot of that. I'm sorry, it's I was great. laughing at something else. <laughs> it's so so an accident of yeah. timing. Yeah, yeah, the only right. way to succeed in an offline game is to spend loads of time online. online. Back to cybersecurity chat. Earlier this month, the USB Implementers Forum officially launched its USB Type-C authentication program. Matt, can you talk us through what it is and what it means for people? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a way um, it's a, it's a way of basically authenticating the devices that you're plugging into into your laptop, PC, or into your phone, for instance. So if you plug a phone charging cable into your phone, you want to make sure it's a decent one. It's not going to blow the phone up. 
a few years ago, we had that famous juice jacking demo. I think it was at Defcon or at Black Hat where there was a free charging station and you yeah. plugged in the power cable, yeah. but it didn't just have the power. Have power and data. It basically tried to leach data as well. Mm. So this presumably would give you a better identification of an individual device. Yeah. So it's all about solving, it's all about sol- solving a number of problems. So on the US, on the USB website, <laughs> they've got, you can actually download their sort of, um, their description of what they're planning to, to, to create. And, and in, in that documentation, it tells you the kind of use cases that they're aiming for. So they've named three use cases. Like firstly, a vendor concerned about, um, product damage resulting from, um, uh, unstandardized charging devices can set a policy requiring that only certified products are used for charging. Hang on a minute. Yeah. Call me cynic, but this sounds like an opportunity to insist that you only buy our premium $100 USB cables. Yeah, that is what a lot of people have been saying. But then if you listen to... But we're to already the... in that world, right? Well, well, we were before USB-C came along. Apple with Lightning, there's Thunderbolt. Printers have been doing this for years. I bought a printer which was designated for the market of the continent of Africa. I brought it to the United Kingdom. I went and bought an identical toner refill and I plugged it in and there's a chip on there that says, sorry, can't do that. So I think we already live in that world. Don't we? Isn't, isn't it better that when you plug in the device, at least there's a cryptographically solid chance that you know what device it is? As I understand at the moment, when you plug in a USB device, you get a 16-bit vendor ID and a 16-bit device ID, and that's that. So all keyboards from Manufacture X, even the legit ones, look identical anyway. Yeah. So the second the second problem that it addresses that you, you've been speaking about, in a way, is that if there's a common penetration testing tactic, if you look up USB rubber ducky, for instance, you'll find that there are these USB sticks that you can plug into your computer, and they'll act as a keyboard. And uh, so, uh, so one of the common penetration testing cat tactics is to drop USB keys in the car park, wait for someone to pick them up, and then plug it into one of their computers at work. And therefore, that keyboard that it's emulating will type in a set of commands. So it may open PowerShell and then run a few commands on that machine. Uh, and those commands can do whatever that attacker wants. So um, that is the that is the second thing that this is trying to address. To say if a USB that you plug into your computer is indeed a certified USB, it will be allowed. If it's a certified keyboard, it will be allowed. If it's a USB rubber ducky, that's not certified. So the second use case that they they publish on their website directly says, a user concerned about charging his phone on a public terminal can set a policy in his phone, or his or her phone, I guess it's supposed to say, uh, (laughs) requiring that the phone only charge from certified PD products. So that what they're directly saying there is that the user can set the policy. So the idea behind this is that there is there will be introduced user-based controls over this, not necessarily vendor-based controls. So although it does give the vendor the ability to set that control, the idea behind it is that it puts the it puts you back in in charge. You've got me intrigued. What was number three? Number three is uh, an organization concerned about unidentified storage. Devices gaining access to corporate PC assets can set a policy in its PCs requiring that only USB storage devices that have been verified and signed by corporate IT are used. Bringing this down to the level of the home user. Yeah. Let's say at home I've got three or four things I might plug into my laptop that use a USB connection. Can I say my laptop is only going to accept those four 
peripherals. There's nothing to say that that is going to be baked into OS software at the moment, but but there's nothing to say that it can't be. So the idea of it is it's introducing a platform for that to be allowed. Okay. But are you suggesting that now vendors who make things like keyboards, which they make in giant factories by the zillion, are going to be trusted to sign each device uniquely? Yeah. Presumably, it would be nice to head there. So you can buy five keyboards and they've got some cryptographic identifier and it's not trivial to change it. Again, people will say, oh, well, this is all about DRM and control. You can only put my firmware on your, on my device. But many devices are already like that. And it's better than allowing anybody to put any firmware on it without asking you. So overall, what do we think? Good thing, bad thing? I think overall, good thing. It depends on the implementation of it when it comes down to the individual vendors. Some people are quite cynical about the idea of this and, and, and they think that, that this is just going to be a platform for vendors like Apple to just charge extra for their official Apple licensed USB key. Like they did with the MagSafe connector for years and years and years yeah. until they discontinued it in favor of USB-C. And amazingly, we get lots of people on USB-C articles on Naked Security complaining that MagSafe was way better. I hate USB-C. It's going to bend. It's going to corrode. It's all rotten. I love my MagSafe. Despite the fact for the first time in its life, Apple said, let's ditch something proprietary and go to something open standard, which I thought was a great idea. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I seriously think, I think if the vendors are quite responsible with it, they allow other other people to integrate. And I don't see any I think we've crossed that bridge. Well, I'm wondering how long this will take to produce a result is that complexity of the people who make devices that if they have this opportunity to sort of digitally certify each one, how well are they going to do that? On to our next subject, Mark. Fishing for 2FA tokens has just got easier. What's going on? Uh, yeah, it has, sadly. But before we get into why it's got easier, let's just recap what phishing is. So phishing is where crooks set up a fake website that's designed to steal your login credentials, your username and password. The crooks will, they might wait for you to get there by accident, but more likely they'll send you an email with a link and some kind of message that makes it important that you go and visit their fake version of the website straight away. We just did wrote up one on Naked Security the other day about UK retailer Argos, very basic looking SMS that said refund available, click here. And when you clicked here, the fake Argos login page, apart from the wrong domain, was basically pixel perfect. They'd copied it exactly. The typical MO is that you get some kind of message, typically an email, and it says something like, yeah, there's a really important reason that you need to go and check something at the website. So just to recap, so it's about stealing your, your username and password. You log into the fake website and obviously that gives the username and password that you've logged in with yeah. to whoever's operating that website. And then they can go and take that and log into the real one, pretend to be you, change your password, do that kind of thing. So phishing has been around for decades. The reason it's been around for decades is it, is it works and it continues to be successful. But it's adapted slowly over time. So as the web has changed, phishing has changed as well. So obviously, you know, over the last three or four years, there's been a, a, a rise in the number of websites using HTTPS, using encryption. So you see the little green padlock. So... You, there's a corresponding increase in the number of phishing websites that use that little green yeah. padlock as well. More recently than that, what we've seen is as sites have started to adopt two-factor authentication, so we're starting to see phishing websites that are trying to steal two-factor authentication codes so as that's, well. That's the thing that typically you might get an SMS on your phone that says to log into blah, blah, blah site, you need this one-time code. And if the crook doesn't get that code at that moment, the username and password alone is not enough. It's exactly that. So it's a, it's a code and the code is limited by time. 
So it's good for 30 seconds to a minute, something like that. If the two-factor authentication code is on your phone, then it's not enough just to hoover up your password from yeah. some data breach. They actually have to go and target your phone as well. So typically we've talked about right. two-factor authentication being compromised by things like SIM swaps, where you effectively take over someone's phone and then you get the code delivered to you instead of to the person who actually owns the phone. But what we've seen more recently is that if you're from the crook's point of view, there's a there's an easier way of getting hold of that 2FA code than trying to do a SIM swap on the phone. And that's capturing it when people type that in as well as the username and password. And it's, it's harder for them because they've got about 30 seconds to a minute to use yeah. that code. But, you know, we're talking about the world of computer code here and automating things like capturing a code and going and using it somewhere else. So it makes it more difficult for them because they can't just send out an email that goes to a static website that gets your password and then use it next week. They have to be in the thick of things at the moment you log in, but that just changes the amount of effort they have to put in. It doesn't make it impossible, does it? Absolutely not. And I I think what's happening now is that we're seeing that the crooks are prepared to go to that effort at the moment, particularly in terms of targeted attacks. So that's kind of the, that's the background noise to um, what's going on, what we're talking about now, which is a, a brand new penetration testing tool called Modelishka, which I think is the Polish word for mantis. As in brain mantis. Terrifying, scary, mm. ambushing insect. Is that the one where the female copulates with the male and then chows it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he gets one, <clears throat> he goes out in a blaze of glory, how can I put it? Kind of popular in the the world of things with exoskeletons, isn't it? <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Okay, so this thing is a praying. So mantis. anyway, yes, I digress. This this uh, this mantis tool, it's a penetration testing tool, and it automates the business of two factor authentication phishing. It sits on a phishing domain, and let's say you're trying to fish Gmail, it will act as a proxy to Gmail. So rather than copying actually sort of downloading and copying all the code to get a pixel-perfect copy of Gmail, you're you're seeing Gmail live through this kind of window, and they're overlaying things on top of that that capture the codes. So Ah, so you're you're logging in, but your login doesn't make it all the way. Then they say, oh, we need the token. And when you send the token code, they add it to their request. So they log in from their server. And this is for research purposes only, is so it? So it's the, the person who created it makes it very clear on the GitHub page that this is for penetration testing and educational purposes only. Uh, I don't imagine that if you're in the business of trying to steal things from people that you're going to spend too much time worrying about that message. Oh dear. This now means that crooks who weren't quite up to the job of attacking 2FA in the past... Yeah. Anybody can do it now. Yeah, as we see across all areas of technology, it, you know, the, the hard stuff only ever gets easier. Yeah. And this, you know, the technology is neutral in a way. It's, it's, it's just got easier for everyone. But it's not an open invitation, is it? There are still telltale signs that anybody should be able to teach themselves to spot if you use this model Ishka tool. Yep. So there's a bunch of things that you can do. The first thing that it's important to understand about this is it is still a phishing website. It's still not the real website, the domain is different. So anything that's actually relying on that domain will fail. So if you've got a an authentication key, like a universal second factor or a web authen uh, key that you use for your second factor, it will refuse to give up credentials to that phishing website because it will still be on the wrong domain. And presumably if you have a password manager, yep. 
it'll go, what do you mean? I'm not even put, you won't even put your password. You won't even put your username in because it'll go, I've never heard of that site before. Yeah. Although it's sophisticated, at the end of the day, it's another phishing website and the things that work now for phishing websites continue to work. So the big difference for the crooks who may end up using this is if you're struggling to do the network programming, this guy just did it for you. Yep, exactly that. Idea. I, think, I guess the, the, the big picture is that the story about phishing has always been its social engineering. So the game is to get people to part with things. And the only really good defense against that is to use something that you can't part with, which is where things like the keys and the password manager come yes. in. You know, something else is making the decision about whether or not what you're dealing with is legitimate. You know, it's not your own sense of whether it's real. There's actually a little bit more logic going on. Ask yourself the question about whatever message you've received yes, exactly. that's prompted you to do this. How likely is it that your bank has really done that? Have they ever done that before? Absolutely. That's a good point. So even if you've got a YubiKey, that's not an excuse for being sloppy about well, security. It's, it's all about, it's, as ever, it's all about defense in depth. Yeah. So the, a YubiKey is a good tool to have. It's a, it's a good second factor. That doesn't, it's not an excuse for having a crappy password. That's Absolutely. not an excuse made for that point many times. not it's using a password manager. It's not an excuse for, you know, clicking on everything you get in email. Yes, it's a two-factor multi-factor authentication. It's not a different sort of one-factor authentication in an ideal world. And the, the defense in-depth argument is, is also a good reason for sticking with SMS two-factor authentication if that's all you've got. So there's a lot of talk now about, I think, was it NIST discouraged the use of yeah. Uh, two-factor authentication using SMS messages. Yes, they sort of deprecated it for US government. Yeah. But you're right, a lot of people have jumped on that bandwagon and said, oh, that means it's terrible. And in fact, if you use it, your security is even weaker than it was before. Yeah. I would suggest I would, that I if would. you've got any form of two-factor authentication, that's such a vast upgrade over simply having a password. In terms of, you know, there are so many ways for you, even if you do everything right, there are so many ways for you to lose your password. Yeah. Because you can always lose your password in a breach you don't control how the websites that you type passwords into store that password so you don't get to decide if it's breached, whether that was stored in plain text and didn't require any cracking at all. So I think any form of second factor is a huge upgrade to your security. And then, okay, yes, pick the best option that you can from the ones that are available, but don't back off from using SMS two-factor authentication if that's what you've got. I would agree with that. The other thing that I've seen people asking in the community is, with Mod- Modlishka, well, wouldn't you recognize if it's HTTP versus HTTPS? But actually, the crook's going to be using a fake domain anyway, so they can buy their own certificates for that domain, because even though you think you're going to Facebook.com... I have, I have never liked this, or maybe this is just how I remember, maybe I remember myself being cleverer than I really am, yeah. but I've never liked this idea that certificates are some kind of anti-phishing thing. Speaking of certificates, haven't they expired on a load of government websites this week? Yes. What's called the US government shutdown, where their federal funding can't be approved to all sorts of parts of the US public service. Part of the stuff that's not essential is renewing the HTTPS, the TLS, the website certificates on some federal government websites. So they kind of between a rock and a hard place. Do you so just. What are the certificates? Can you the, explain what they are? Uh, a web certificate is basically a some cryptographic data that is signed by a trusted third party called a certificate authority or CA that you use when someone connects to your website to present a blob of digital data that tells the person at the other end, this website really is called XYZ. 
So you get a fighting chance of knowing that you're talking to the right site if you know where to look. The point is that if you want, the certificate has to be vouched for by a third party. And generally, somebody at a federal government level, to vouch for that certificate, they need to go to a certificate authority, someone to sign it for them, that would charge them. It, the, the cost is not a lot, but they're not free, so you have to pay, which means there's an invoice and a payment required. And the, some parts of the public service in the US, they're not allowed to pay their bills at the moment. So there is a knock-on effect. The one I'm really worried about is the fact that there may be sites still operating that people need to use, and the easiest short-term solution is just to encourage or kind of look the other way while they click through certificate warnings. And that means that in six months' time, the crooks will find it easier to do exactly the same. It's not good practice to be able to start accepting that websites can have expired certificates. Because the, the warning can quite look quite similar, whether, whether it's an expired certificate or whether it's an invalid certificate. Uh, and, and any of those warnings are a warning for a reason that they're, they're completely valid and they get, they're supposed to scare you off. The only thing website. that worries me, although I'm a, I prefer that approach and I'm a fan of that, that like the website should fail completely. The only thing that worries me about that slightly is that I see an opportunity if we have a protracted shutdown, which is not off the cards. Then there's an opportunity for uh, fakery to, yes. to yeah. if if you can't access the website at all, then Google, when it's trying to index the website, can't access the website at all either, and that means that it, that website is likely to sink in search results. So if you were trying to, if you were operating a phishing website that was pretending to be a legitimate government website or one of the scams that we've seen in the UK where people are charging for things that are free, like government services that are free. People set up websites that offer exactly the same thing, but they charge for it. If you're trying to compete in search rankings against the real website, it just got much, much easier. So what I've seen with some of the sites is you're basically being redirected to a non-shutdown, secure HTTPS certificate secured site that just says, we're really sorry, here are the services you can access, and here are the ones you're really sorry you're going to have to wait. Accept no imposters. So that's kind of the best they, it seems that they can do. There's some, there's some interesting discussion about this on the Naked Security story as well, because I think somebody popped up in the comments and said, look, you know, if you're public, if you, if you're public spirited and you have a public service ethos and you work for one of these organizations, how hard is it for you to log in and renew that certificate? And, some people plausibly have been replying saying it's a federal offence yeah. to yeah. do that, you know, to, to work when the government is shut down. Um, you're kind of working without permission and you're not allowed to do that and it's a crime. And you'd hope that a random employee on their own bat can't just phone up a certificate authority and say, hey, I want a certificate for blah, 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 dot gov. All I can suggest is exercise caution and... Don't just go and blindly trust search results. I think the only advice you can give, really, is be careful out there, folks. That's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media? At DuckBlog on Twitter. Mark. It's the best place. Well, you can find me at, at Mark Stockley, but much more interesting than that, Talk you about can the hens. find my chickens on at Internet of Hens. Oh, and that. I can't wait to follow. Tweet, I, I'd like tweet. to know why you're not following them right now. I, I didn't know about them. How many? I, I knew so about them. I didn't know about their internet presence. Into. How can I not have told you? You've, you've told me about them, but you've not told me about their internet presence. There's about 16 followers or something. That's pretty big. I think it's, it's maybe, maybe as much as 
23 now. What? I think after this podcast, maybe 24. If you get your chickens into Game of Thrones, Matt will be on it instantly. I thought you were going to suggest I bring them into the podcast. Yes. He's getting away without giving himself away. I'm Infosec Body on Instagram, Twitter, and that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now I'm going to set Matt up a fan page on Facebook and a fan page on Facebook <laughs> at the moment I have around 60 followers you could be number 61 uh, thank do you, you. Do if you follow the hens they'll sure to follow you they're do the hens follow the hens follow follow back, back. Yeah. quite pecky they're quite pecky I think we should finish on that note <laughs> we are of course Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. You can tweet us with your suggestions for the podcast or you can also email us at tips at sophos.com. And until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.